this is crystal from the spooky barber babes and brianna today our story is actually going to be about what today is about well if you're watching this on the release day which is valentine's day happy valentine's day or happy Happy anti-valentine's day whichever you choose (laughs) it's okay whatever you celebrate we're all here for it neither neither one of us are wearing red for the occasion so it's fine We could have thought about that ahead of time, but it's fine. I've got right here. That's about it. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and there, but either way. Um, (laughs) So for today, we are actually, no, we're not touching it on like, it's true crime, but but it's history. Like historical true crime. Big part of history. So today we will be talking about the St. Valentine's Massacre, aka one of the I want to say one of the biggest mob losses, like mob murders mm-hmm. in Chicago history. And it's been so, subtly referenced in quite a few films without outgoing, like outright saying that it's what it is. If you've ever seen the oh so classic movie, Some Like It Hot, starting, Mar- starring Marilyn Monroe, uh, the two gentlemen in the beginning that are on the run uh, for witnessing something, that's, if you really watch it, that's what they're supposed to have witnessed. Because if you think about it, it's the time frame. I know now you want to go back and watch that movie. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, there really wasn't many mm. witnesses in that scene. What happened? Granted, inside. I don't think that there were historical witnesses at all. Oh, I yeah, think that no. was just a little. I think like, on the outside, what could we have them witness? <laughs> yeah, I think on the outside there was a couple witnesses seeing what we'll get into a little later. But as far as I, I don't think anybody actually knew. Mm. So. Yeah anyways so for today we are just going to jump right on into the story so let's get started on the night of february 14th 1929 george bugs moran witnessed what he thought was a police raid he saw four gentlemen dressed as police officers entering his establishment on north clark street now unbeknownst to him that was not what was going down inside now, a little history here. George Bugs Moran was a career criminal who ran the north side of Chicago during the 1920s bootlegging era. Now, he had an arch rival, and some of you can guess who that was. But if you don't know, it was the notorious Al Scarface Capone. The two fought over Chicago's trafficking and smuggling operations, even with having both of them attempt several, like, murders and assassinations on each other. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17th, 1899. He was born to Italian immigrants, Gabriel and Teresa Capone. Uh, Oddly enough, his father was a barber, which is ironic, and his mother was a seamstress. So Alphonse would end up being one of nine children, you know, Italian Catholic family, shocker. Capone would actually end up having a happy marriage, uh, despite the criminal lifestyle that he was known for. Uh, So the funny part about how he met his wife, May, he was in a restaurant when he saw her and his opening line to her was, hey gal, you got nice ass. And her brother proceeded to take out his knife, giving him a nice solid mark across the face that would later solidify the name Scarface. Who knew it was that simple? So when they actually got married, uh, he was only 19 years old. So because he was under the age of 21, his parents had to consent in writing to the marriage, which is interesting for the time frame. But 
that's right? what it said so okay hmm. <laughs> the couple would later have a son together albert francis sonny capone uh so yeah capone basically initially began his career in new york with some small-time gangs some of the ones named were junior 40 thieves and the bowery boys and then he later joined the brooklyn rippers and then the five points gang in lower manhattan which kind of makes you wonder if you gang jump that much does that kind of put a target on your back possibly possibly i mean so real fast for those of you out there that would like to get um a little bit more of a touch on it there was an hbo series a while back i think you can watch it on hbo max it's called boardwalk empire and the gentleman who portrayed al capone did such a good job getting his like temper in check with it that i was just like whoa i i watched it years ago when it came out um but it was actually good we like if actually- they do another capone movie i feel like just pick that dude like yeah which i don't know if they would considering that they just did the one recently that crystal and i were actually just talking about before we hit record uh there was a tom hardy one that came out fairly recently that i have not watched as she has not watched yet but i would really like to because it's i mean it's tom hardy so let's be honest it's just gonna be terrible so (laughs) (laughs) it's not gonna be terrible i would say that sarcastically the dude could act in a campbell soup commercial and it would still be epic so (laughs) no you need you need to watch bronson yeah yeah that one if you want to see tom hardy go looking insane and also go pretty much completely naked watch bronson (laughs) anyways back back to our story So in 1919, Capone would move to Chicago at the invitation of crime boss Johnny Torrio, who would basically make him his right-hand man. So the basis of our tale today kind of surrounds prohibition, which for those who don't know, there was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, transportation, and importation of all sale of alcoholic beverages from 1920 to 1933. Not all alcohol was banned. So, for example, the use of religious wine during mass and services were permitted, which kind of makes you question separation of church and state. I don't know if that's, you know, really the realistic reason why, but it does make you think. So during this time, there was a lot of illegal speakeasies. Yes, the type that you really had to know the password or know a guy to get in. If you watch Great Gatsby, that kind of that kind of vibe, a lot of. A lot of speakeasies, a lot of flappers, a lot of underground bars happening. So a lot of these were either run by gang members who had connection to the sale of alcohol. So the production of most of the underground sales of alcohol were controlled by gangs at the time. And it was all about really which territory you were in. And you better not cross one dealer's territory with another because that makes for a big problem. (laughs) Which is where our story lines up. Yep. About to say, um, I know you you looked up a little bit more about when mm-hmm. Capone took over the uh, north south side, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you know, do you remember exactly when that was? So uh, it looks like it was around January of 1925. So he was involved in an ambush and attempt on his life, which really just kind of left him shaking up, shaken up, but not hurt. But then around 12 days later, there was an attempt on Johnny Torrio's life, which when he was returning home from a shopping trip, he was just shot several times. 
But and if I'm correct, I think that was O'Banion that mm-hmm. did that because that actually sparks exactly where I was going to pick yep. up at, where there was a bit of with Torio leaving, um, Torio having a brush with death, which was O'Banion, and then there was a hit on um, O'Banion, which then leads into, you guessed it, a hit on Al Capone. Now, this attempt was made by uh, Bugs Moran, Shimer Drusi, I couldn't pronounce that first name to save my life, and Jaime Weiss on September 20th, 1926 at around 1.15 p.m., gunshots fired through um, Capone's headquarters in um, at the Hawthorne Inn in Cicero. Now, Capone was on the first floor having lunch at the time with his um, bodyguard. Now, I do dive into the bodyguard's history a little bit later on, but his name was Jack McGurn. Now, remember that name because there's a lot with him later. Now, Capone and his bodyguard both hit the ground, you know, protecting him and whatnot, um, but only one car passed by. Uh, later, you know, you, you're still hearing the gunshots going off as, you know, the car's driving away. Well, Capone jumps up and runs to the door, kind of stupid, but he then looks around and realizes, oh shit, nothing's broken. The windows aren't broken. No, like, yeah, there was all these gunshots, but nothing was broken. It was a decoy to get him out and to the front and even possibly outside of the hotel where seven Lincolns that were driven by Drusy, Moran, and Weiss unloaded over a thousand gunshots from machine guns into the Hawthorne Inn. But to the North Gang's failure, they did not kill or even injure Capone. Ah, like that has to be frustrating also, but capone's body shot do you have to be <laughs> well i don't think with those guns back then like no, the true. thompson machine guns there wasn't really like aim plus i mean you yeah. they couldn't see him like his uh, bodyguard true. had managed to land on top of him and like get and keep him down yeah and you, they I, I noticed and you see it in all of the gang movies they aim up they never aim down that's true you never aim like at the ground where everyone's slaying you you might lay up but in retaliation capone then ordered a hit on jaime weiss and he jaime was killed shot uh at obanion's flower shop later and this back and forth just continued between capone and the gangs on the north um but the final straw that capone had was when a fifty thousand dollar bounty was put on his head and he basically then ordered moran's gang destroyed didn't care how he just he wanted them dead so on february 14th 1929 the worst day in mob history moran was running late to um an expected whiskey like bootlegged whiskey delivery um so his guys were already inside you know they were sitting there waiting for everything and bugs was like oh crap i gotta get there but when he got there he parked a little ways away but he watched four police officers and i put that in quotes because yeah they entered his garage on 2122 north clark street 
And he just expected his men were going to get arrested. He didn't think anything of it. He was just like, oh crap, they're all just going to get arrested. It's a police raid. You know, they'll get arrested, they'll come out, and then I can just go in and just do what I got to do. Um, but instead, inside the garage, the four officers turned out to actually be Capone's men in disguise. They lined up seven of Moran's men, basically all seven guys that were in. And this included Moran's top killers, Frank and Pete Gusenberg. And he lined, they lined them all up in a wall. Now, pictures that I saw, which um, will be included in on this, let me preface this by saying before the pictures do go up, they are gruesome. No picture I found has like body sheets on them. None. Mm-hmm. So if you have a weak stomach, I suggest skipping over the pictures because you do you see brains blood the whole nine and you're just like okay now the saving grace is that most of them are black and white so you can kind of read between the lines a little bit but there are there it's too obvious to go yeah oh this is blurred no it's it is extremely obvious and i believe me i tried finding pictures that were blurred well, same no, with the Black Dahlia nothing. case. I mean, a lot of those photos, you factor cameras aren't, were nearly as high tech as they are now. So God. that's a, <laughs> that's a saving grace in some of those cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the, like any article I read, it said that they were lined up, but um, the pictures that we'll be showing, there's chairs. So I have a feeling that these gentlemen were put in chairs and literally shot in the face. I do not think they were shot from behind. I think they were shot straight from the face. Um, I've seen some described it as a firing squad. I've also seen some that describe the chair thing. So as it's been portrayed, it's usually firing squad style. So I think it was both because like I said, you see the chairs that they all were sitting in. Frank he was still alive mortally wounded but still alive when the real police officers got there and you know they're asking who shot you who shot you who shot you but he kept to his code of silence pretty much up until he died and said no one nobody shot me despite being riddled with bullets he was like nope not gonna snitch so the massacre was actually proven to be the last confrontation between the two gangs um basically because in 1931 capone was arrested sent to jail um and i mean if you guys like would like to hear some more about capone we could totally do a whole other episode on him i mean he was held locally um in eastern state penitentiary for a few years in philadelphia they actually still have a replica of, well, okay, here's the thing that irritates me. Yes, they have a replica of the cell that he was in with furniture mm-hmm. the whole nine. Well, the last time that I was there, it wasn't the room that they had used as Al Capone's cell for years because it was literally the room right next to it, but with different furniture and this and that. So I get it. Stuff decays over the years. So they might have also they might have also been trying to do some repairs to the room. Possibly. That could be a big thing. Cause I mean, when it comes to his like historical figures going into those um yeah. like jail cells, they do try to keep the rooms from crumpling. And I know there was um when I went, the Capone room was still Capone's room, but there was some like wall damage. And I know that they said that they were in the process of fixing up a couple of the most notable cells. So that could be a reason. Too. I mean, the time frame that he was eventually incarcerated, I mean, we're not quite up to the hundred year mark, but we're in the 90s. 
in terms of you know yeah time frame and eastern state penitentiary is literally a crumbling ruin at this point so they gotta yeah upkeep what they can that's why they don't do the haunt anymore because it's just too much dangerous but if you do go so it's funny because when i went to eastern state um this was back when boardwalk empire was in its prime and the audio book that they give you with your little headphones I don't know if it's still because I think you went more recently than me but Mm. it was none other than Steve Buscemi who plays um a mob boss in Atlantic City and you know has a lot of interaction with Capone and literally calls Capone a hothead the whole time so it's interesting I would say if you are a local or if you're traveling to Philadelphia uh, you I would definitely take a look and stop in and see the history Mm -hmm. now back to this (laughs) moran had lost too many important people during the massacre that he ended up losing control of his territory um so basically that kind of ended ended everything but seven years later and a day on february 15th 1936 the anniversary of the massacre one of capone's hitmen aka his bodyguard Jack McGurn was killed in a crowded bar. Well, not a bar, bowling alley. My bad. Now, with that said, the bowling alley was on 805 Milwaukee Ave, and he entered it with two men that he were so-called friends. Now, another gentleman yelled in the bowling alley, you move, you die. Now, this is where the friends ended up lining up in a semicircle around McGurn and pulled guns on him. Now, some one article I read said there was machine gun fire. Um, another, another article was like, oh no, it was just some handguns. Either way, McGurn was shot three times in the head and once in the back while trying to escape. Everyone thought that the killer was George Bugs Moran getting revenge on Jack for being the one to ice all of his friends. Now, with the witnesses that I said earlier, um, there were some witnesses that were not in the building, not even like in surrounding buildings. They just saw somebody, they saw four people walking out of um, the garage. And Two of them were still dressed as police officers, but the other two were were black suits, hats, ties, like mobsters wore, and they were being walked out at gunpoint to actually continue to believe that it was um, a raid, but that you know police officers were staying and only two people were taken. So that's where the um, they had asked for witness statements and stuff like that so I mean I guess I could see where that movie could have had the two people that they walked out could be like the witness protection people but I I don't think so yeah I mean keep in mind we're talking about a satirical comedy where they two men essentially (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire themselves into a female band here so like yeah well (laughs) um but so basically after all of this went down moran he became a small-time robber 
it's all he could really do at that point. So he was then arrested in 1946 and 11 years later in 1957, Moran had died in Leavenworth Federal Prison. I was about to say Leavenworth Penitentiary, but it's Leavenworth Federal Prison um, from lung cancer. Now, in 1967, Moran's garage was scheduled for demolition. Um, but with that, a wealthy entrepreneur by the name of George Pate recovered over 300 bricks from the wall that the people were lined up against. Now, um, these bricks are now on display at the Mob Museum. And if you watch Ghost Adventures, um, they actually do an episode at the Mob Museum where Zach is standing in front of the wall because it was reassembled there. Blood still on the bricks bullet holes still on the bricks like I don't think there's any bullets in the bricks anymore but um there was like the holes are still there and they're like now like circled like oh here you go um now the day after the massacre in 1929 they the police brought in the former forensic scientist his name was Dr. Calvin Goddard and basically what he was there to do was assess how many guns, what kind of guns, and, you know, things along that line, which I mean, for the 1920s, okay, we see you, but um, he ended up evaluating and assessing weapons and bullets based off of um, gunfire in a testing range, so from what he had gathered, um, he figured out what the bullets were, you know, they were 45 caliber, but the more interesting part is the bullets that were in the gun, like that were in the wall and stuff and all the casings actually belonged, they were confiscated from a rural mob home of a notorious hitman. Guess who that hitman is believed to be? Jack McGurn. They, they uh, confiscated two 45 caliber Thompson machine guns from the home. And they're saying that those were what was used to commit the murders. Now, the last murder that is attached to this actually came in 1936. And the only reason why it came to light is because it was actually Jack McGurn's brother, Anthony, and he was killed by three men at a pool hall because he basically was running his mouth off and goes, oh, well, I know who killed my brother. I know who killed my brother and I'm going to go to the cops. Basically, baby brother was going to be a snitch. And uh, you, you always hear that snitches get stitches. Back then it was snitches gets bullets. I mean, I looked, I did some research on Jack and his brother. Jack had used a couple different aliases because Jack wasn't even his real name. It was something, Nicholas, I think, something like that. But uh, he actually entered the Chicago Masters as a golfer after um, Capone got put away. And he was escorted on the greens by police officers because they were trying to arrest him. And he just asked them politely, like, can I at least finish out the game? And they were like, okay, but we're following you. So him and his brother did a whole golf, short golf career for like one tour. But um, the more interesting part is, is Jack McGurn was not Italian. He was actually Irish, but because he, um, he wanted to be a boxer, he was Italian, but used an Irish name. There we go. My bad. Swap that. <laughs> um, but because he wanted to be a boxer, 
Irish boxers were getting booked more back then and they were kind of more well sought after than Italian boxers. So that's why he came up with the name Jack McGurn. Little odds and ends. But yeah, I mean, that's everything that we could find on the case. I couldn't find much else. When I say short, sweet, and to the point, it is short, sweet, and to the point. So moving forward, just to give everybody a heads up, because we did realize, like, holy crap, that Jody Arias case was almost two hours long. Um, <laughs> we are going to start, if we see that an episode looks like it's going to be extremely long, we are going to cut it part into parts. Or, yeah. Two or three parts. This way, you guys aren't stuck sitting at a computer or watching us banter back and forth for two hours don't get me um, wrong we appreciate it if you do and i mean if you're oh, a yeah. commuter and you've got that kind of time in a vehicle because i mean i know that full well that's half i that's half the reason i started listening to some of the podcasts that i do is because i did that for over a year yeah so it's so we appreciate it but we're, we're also keeping you guys in mind as well um and we're going to try to make some short, simple, sweet ones. And then if they, we see like bigger cases that we're going to be doing later, like um, John Bonet, Casey Anthony, um, Eileen Warnos, um, I would say probably Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, mm-hmm. basically all your big time serial killers mm-hmm. will probably end up being like two to three parts just because that's a lot of information. It's a lot of information. <laughs> so um well plus too i mean i think i even put it in there too i mean some of the bigger cases especially that require a lot of photos a lot of um especially with jody arias where you know the voicemail and the 911 call and the interrogation footage and stuff like that like anybody that's out there that knows how to do any kind of video editing and stuff like that can probably appreciate the amount of work something like that takes because I legit had to sit there and screen record the interrogation footage and then scrub through it and edit down what we actually use so it's just like it's a lot of work so it was a lot of it was like a good four days of sitting at a computer just like and I felt bad because I suck and at working. video editing <laughs> I suck at video editing I basically while she was doing that I was doing the research for this episode because yeah. we I can't I try I can't I you would end up being able to tell I tell you what, the day that I finally finished and put the Jodi Arias case up, I took the longest nap (laughs) because I was just like, that was my way of like mental, (sighs) which, which I mean, going through these cases and doing the research, depending on like the kind of person that they were, a case like that takes a lot out of you like yeah. it does so especially I, I when you honestly, have to hear like the whole case for four days straight when you're editing it so I think that's another reason why I haven't done the Charles Edmund Cullen case yet is just because like doing the research and writing out my script and everything it's taxing like just n- hearing them describe their killings and stuff like that it's like and their reasoning behind it you're just like oh but um there will possibly be some episodes where brianna and i may just do a solo episode on youtube Mm -hmm. of something that like we have a little bit more knowledge of um we're going to be playing around with trying to see what we can get for youtube content for you guys um but other than that i wanted to say thank you again for watching yes thank you Um, for watching if you're watching 
please subscribe to us, not only here, but over on whatever podcast platform you have. It really does help us out a lot. And if you are listening, head over to our YouTube channel, which will be linked in the show notes. So then that way you can check out the video format of a couple of our cases, just so then that way you can see maybe some more in-depth stuff you wouldn't be able to get in just audio form. Um, Also like us on Facebook and Instagram. I promise I will start getting Twitter figured out when I can figure it out. I suck at that kind of stuff, but I will figure it out. I'm working on it. Promise. But anyways, thank you so much. And we hope you have a fantastic Valentine's day or anti Valentine's day. However you celebrate, whatever you do, even if you just pour a drink and sit by yourself and sip it and watch true crime or a comedy or anything at this point the olympics (laughs) that's still on that's still a thing (laughs) either way thank you for listening thank you for watching and we'll see you next time have a spooky day guys